What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome, I'm Paul Gigo with the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages here on Potomac Watch. And my guest today is an author, a prolific author, Philip K. Howard. He's uh, written many books, including The Death of Common Sense. And I think of him as someone who across his career has examined why government so often can't do its basic tasks competently and what we can do about it. And he has a new book out called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. It's not at all a dull legal tome. It's an argument for why public unions, the kind that represent government workers, have become the biggest obstacle, Mr. Howard says, to effective democratic small d democratic self-government. So uh, welcome, Phil. Good to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to come in. Nice to be with you, Paul. So you make some really provocative arguments in the book, and here's one I want to get right off the bat. Quote, accountability is basically non-existent in American government. Performance doesn't matter, end quote. Very provocative statement. How so? And, and give us some examples. <laughs> okay. Well, there have been lots of studies of this. I mean, there was an 18-year study in Illinois that showed an average of two out of 95,000 teachers were dismissed for performance. That's twice the rate that there is in California, where it's two or three <laughs> per year out of 300,000 teachers. Washington Post study of 37 large cities showed a termination rate of police of 0.02%. 99% of all federal employees get a fully successful rating. So it's not actually a controversial statement. It's just, <laughs> just an accurate one. Well, in my own career, what I've discovered is that government is measured by the press corps only on inputs. That is how much money you spend on a subject. That's the <laughs> definition of success <laughs> and commitment rather than outputs, which is, of course, what are your results? You spend more on education, but are the kids actually learning any better or at all? <laughs> That's one of the big problems here. Now, another statement you make is that you no longer think that the problems of government, which are well documented, are no longer solvable by elections, which means not ultimately by democratic accountability. Now, when you think about that, that's very dispiriting to hear. So that's where we get into the union problem. So explain that. Yeah. So we elect a president, governors and mayors, and those are are supposed to be public executives, unlike legislators who pass laws, they're supposed to actually manage the government. But decade after decade, really since the 1970s, they have failed to do that. And there's a reason why they failed to do that. Inner city schools get worse. Police forces develop toxic work cultures. The inefficiency of government is really breathtaking. And we elect people who keep saying they'll have change we can believe in or drain the swamp or whatever, and nothing changes. Well, there's a reason nothing changes. They are actually figureheads. They don't have the authority 
to manage government. Okay, so they don't have the authority to manage government. Now, where do the public sector unions come in here? I want to just make a definitional distinction here. We're talking about unions not across the entire economy, not the United Auto Workers who represent auto workers and some others, not the machinists who represent machinists and others in the private economy at firms like Boeing or General Motors or Ford. We're talking about public sector unions, and that means the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers who represent teachers, but also AFSCME. And these represent workers in state, local, and federal government. Where do they come in here as an obstacle to effective government? Well, what happened is that almost without anybody noticing, (laughs) with no debate, in the late 60s, as a kind of a throwaway in the rights revolution, public union leaders got the power of collective bargaining which allowed them to go to politicians who've been elected as executives and say, now you have a legal obligation to negotiate with me, with this group as a unit, and you must make it a deal with us. We have that power. And since that time, they have put in more and more rigid controls in the management of government. They eliminated accountability completely, as we just noted. But they also put in these multi-hundred-page collective bargaining agreements that mean if you want to move the desk in an office, that has to be negotiated. If we have a pandemic, well, there's nothing about having to teach during a pandemic so the teachers don't go back to work and they refuse to do distance teaching because that's not in the contract until that's been negotiated. So literally, you've disconnected the spokes from the hub of the wheel so nothing can rule Unions became, in effect, sort of a co-government. And this is a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of our republic. In 1958, politician by the name of Gaylord Nelson in Wisconsin introduced collective bargaining for public unions, as I recall. And then JFK, John F. Kennedy in uh, 1962, introduced it into the federal government. And one of the fascinating things to me historically here is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt and even a former AFL-CIO leader, maybe the most famous AFL-CIO leader, George Meany, opposed collective bargaining for public employee unions because they said they're very different in kind than representing public workers. So two points. One, this is relatively recent. And two, tell us about this distinction between public and private unions when it comes to collective bargaining. It's really an important point. In a trade union context, basically, labor and management are dividing the pie of profit. And both are at risk in the negotiation because if the unions demand too much, the company will go out of business or will move out of town. So the unions have a vested interest in the viability of the enterprise. Public unions are completely different. The government can't move out of town. They can demand as much as they can get away with. And because they can only get so much in salary, although they have bankrupted effectively a few states, they use their power to get all these controls and daily choices. So government became, you know, it's, it's almost like an unhealthy personal relationship. You know, they get all these controls just to show who's in charge. And, of course, uh, private sector unions are subject to marketplace competition, not just the ability to move out of town, but the marketplace moves with demand for the products and success or failure of the company. 
And that's not true of the public sector. So what you end up with in the public sector union circumstance is that unions, in some significant sense, are on both sides of the bargaining table. Yeah, the really important point. So the dynamic of the negotiation is different. In a private business union context, the law is that the parties can't collude. They're on either side of the table. They're both fighting over a limited piece of pie, a share of the profits. The way the public sector bargaining works is that the public unions use their mass, the mass of modern government, to collect dues, huge amounts of dues, to get friendly politicians elected. And then they sit down on the same side of the table and say, what are you going to give me now and make their demands? It's not a real negotiation. It's a payoff. And (laughs) seriously, that's what it is. And so the reason FDR was so opposed to public unions is that the public unions are putting themselves first in line ahead of all interests in society to get things out of government. Whereas FDR said, no, the duty is to represent, he kept saying this, the whole people. People who are elected have to represent the whole people. And public employees have a fiduciary duty to serve the people not to serve themselves. It's a hugely important point. And you give a couple examples in the book. I quote uh, Victor Gottbaum, a former union leader in New York, who said, we have the ability, in a sense, to elect our own boss, <laughs> which makes the point. And then John Corzine, I remember this from when he was the New Jersey governor. He, of course, was elected with the support of union representatives, very significant support. And there was an episode where he appeared with them in a rally and said, we will fight to get a fair contract. But he was the guy that he was fighting against to get the fair contract. (laughs) It's really fundamentally corrupt. I mean, it's not corrupt yet in an illegal sense, but it is corrupt in that people are, in fact, simply using money to get an advantage. And it's different than all other kind of interest groups who try to, you know, give contributions and whatever, because two things. They have the power of collective bargaining, so they're first in line. They're also bigger. They're collecting total of about $5 billion a year in dues, most of which is spent for political you know, influence, which is really just an astonishing amount of money. And of course, then there's the ethical difference. They've all sworn public employees swear a duty of loyalty to the public. And these unions get in place and they negotiate contracts, and this really can't be emphasized too much, that are designed for inefficiency. That's how they're designed. They're designed to waste money. Trash collection in big cities cost twice what private carters pay. The MTA probably pays two to three times as much to run the subway system in New York as it would if it contracted it out. And there are some examples, recent examples that sort of corroborate that. So we're talking about a system of government that at all levels in this country spends about over $2 trillion a year in personnel costs. And some some significant portion of that is basically burned. The Corzine position reminds me of the old New Yorker cartoon where the prosperous looking fellow sits behind the desk and says, you know, I'm going to take this to the man. And the guy across from him says, but you are the man. It's a fundamental conflict of interest and an absurdity. Now, how many states have collective bargaining for public workers now? Uh, 38 states have collective bargaining, but most of the other states have meet and confer laws. Because the public unions have used collective bargaining to amass 7 million people belong to the public unions. 
to amass this huge war chest, what happens is if there's any significant reform effort, including in a state without collective bargaining, public unions use their political war chest to go and influence it, to get people unelected. You know, John Kasich had some union reforms that were similar to Scott Walker's in Wisconsin, and the unions put in, I think, $20 million nationally to have a, a recall of those reforms, and they won. Yeah, and it succeeded. They yeah, won. Yeah, uh, yeah, they won. They won. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, more with Phil Howard on his new book. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, play the opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo here with Philip K. Howard, author of Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. Now, uh, about 35 percent of the public workforce in the United States is unionized versus what, about 6 percent of private yeah. of private workers. Has the Janus decision at the Supreme Court level, which was the famous decision from a few years back that said that union fees cannot be assessed from people who don't want to pay them, has that affected share of union membership or influence? Apparently, the effect has been modest, and some states have put in laws designed to counter Janice. So, for example, in New Jersey, there's a law that says if a school system suggests to a teacher that they don't have to belong to a union, the union can sue the school district for the damages caused to the union. I mean, it's just astonishing. So it's just as with no accountability, there's not a rule that says you can't hold someone accountable. What there are are elaborate procedures and arbitrators picked by the unions and all these other conditions that make it so that no one ever <laughs> is held accountable. So they're doing the same thing with Janice. Okay. So you made the diagnosis of here. here is the problem. And at one point you say the disempowerment of elected leaders by public employee unions has undermined the basic premise of constitutional government. All right. So now what do we do about it? What can be done about it? And I ask that as somebody who personally has been toiling in the vineyards here my entire career fighting <laughs> for school choice and uh, education, yeah. and mostly fruitlessly, but not totally. We're making uh, some progress here now after the pandemic in particular with the expansion of uh, school choice in many, many states. So what else can be done about this? Well, so what I argue in the book is that public union controls are unconstitutional under a basic constitutional principle that comes out of John Locke, which is called the non-delegation doctrine, which is that government officials are not allowed to cede their governing powers to any private entity. That governing is a trust that the voters give to an official, and they must maintain that power. And that principle is reflected in several places in the U.S. Constitution, but for state and local government, it's in the guarantee clause in Article 4, which says the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And what Madison, James Madison, said that meant is that no state or local official could give 
powers over to any aristocracy or nobles or any other favored class that the people who are actually calling the shots on running government must be accountable to the voters. And as a matter, I think, of undisputed fact, that's no longer the case. Is there any case law, are there any precedents where somebody, since the development of public unions and collective bargaining, where somebody challenged them on their constitutionality in court, and how did the courts decide? Well, no one's done it in the Supreme Court. I think there have been challenges in state courts over the years, and the courts have not entertained those challenges. But no one, to my knowledge, has made the argument that I'm making here, and they certainly haven't made it in a federal court under the U.S. Constitution. I mean, there are a couple of steps. I think they're not leaps exactly. For example, the guarantee clause of the of the federal constitution has only been addressed by the Supreme Court in a handful of cases. And each time they've held that the clause was non-justiciable because it involved political questions that should be decided politically. So, for And this is the guarantee clause. The states must guarantee a Republican form of yes, government. Yes, right? that's yeah. correct. But those cases involve issues like which Rhode Island constitution is more Republican than the other. And the Supreme Court held in this case in the 19th century that that's something that the voters or their representatives should decide, not the courts. But the issue that I've raised in this book is not one of sort of a partisan point of view. It's one of constitutional responsibility. Who is supposed to have the authority to manage the school system? Who's supposed to have the authority to fire a bad cop? And that's not a partisan issue. That's one of sort of a constitutional responsibility. We have a separation of powers. We give executive power to do that, and they can't give it away to the unions or anyone else, is the argument. And that's the case I make in the book. Well, it's a very interesting constitutional argument. It's a novel argument, at least in my awareness. But to make a case, to bring a case, as you know, and under longtime Supreme Court doctrine, you have to have standing. You have to have the legal standing to sue. And that means you have to have a tangible injury, specific tangible injury that you can point to the claim the cause of action. Who would be the plaintiffs in this case and what would be their specific injury? Plaintiffs would be people who have the constitutional responsibility to run government. So, so be the be executives. Yeah, executives. Certainly elected governors and mayors could bring the claim. Probably an association of them could bring the claim, like the you know, maybe the Republican Governors Association or something. But we're looking at whether senior officials who also have a constitutional responsibility, non-elected officials could have standing to bring a claim as well. And I'm talking to some of the groups, including the group that brought the Janus case, about bringing the case. What group is that? Called the Liberty Justice Center in Chicago. Okay, so they're a litigation shop. Yeah. And I remember they brought that in part on behalf of then-governor of uh, Illinois, Bruce Rauner. And that was probably the most successful thing about the Rauner governorship was <laughs> that Supreme Court case. And I bring up Illinois because Illinois is in many ways ground zero for your argument. It is dominated in Springfield, the state government, by public unions. I mean, it is a <laughs> that government there is a wholly owned subsidiary of right. the public union movement. And the mayor <laughs> of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, now a woman of the left, is enormously frustrated with the teachers' unions. And I've reported over the years on Rahm Emanuel when he was the mayor of Chicago. 
And I can tell you what he really thinks about the Chicago teachers unions, you can't print. And so that's a good illustration of what happens when they begin to dominate essentially state and local government. Well, first of all, Illinois just passed a constitutional amendment by referendum that provides that collective bargaining agreements supersede all past and present statutes. Think about that. I mean, the concept of overreach is completely unfamiliar to these unions. That's clearly unconstitutional. So the time simply to declare (laughs) what's real is real. The emperor has no clothes. Public unions have not created a merit system. They've created an anti-merit system. And they have become a kind of permanent spoil system. Government is run for them and by them, except unlike the spoil system, which at least had occasional episodic accountability when a new party came to power, everybody got fired. Right. This is the system in place in the 19th century and in parts of the country in the 20th century before uh, some of these reforms. Right. So it's, Tammany Hall. Yeah, in yeah New York. that's right. So now we have a new spoil system, and it it wastes pick a number half the money, uh, you know, at least. And, but even more tragically, it means you can't reform anything. It's an engine of the status quo. Fail schools are there because they're failed schools. Baltimore, was it last week? 23 schools in Baltimore had not one student who was proficient in math. I mean, truly a level of failure These kids don't have a chance. And the kind of horrifying thing is that we look at a figure like that and the press corps goes, well, okay, so what? Can't be changed. You can shake your head and say, it's really a shame, poor kids. But they say, well, we can't be reformed because the obstacles are too great. Truly, the liberals, this is a scandal. It's a scandal, I think, worse than Upton Sinclair's scandal in the jungle. I mean, it needs to be looked at for what it is the human tragedy the burning of money that could be used for all kinds of good public needs, like dealing with homelessness or whatever. It's liberals, for liberals to accept this, to just look the other way, it's just shameful. I mean, it's just shameful. I mean, it's completely, it's unsustainable ultimately. You know, places like Illinois are going bankrupt. But but more than that, it's immoral. It's immoral that we have a democracy where it doesn't, matter much whom you elect. It's immoral that we tolerate schools that we know are bad, you know, and police forces that we know are bad. It's it's very hard to justify the status quo. Well, on that peroration, you get the last word, Phil. So I want to thank you very much for your time. Philip K. Howard, author of Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. It's a short tome. I read it on the weekend and enjoyed it very much and learned from it. And I recommend it to you. Thank you so much for being here, Phil. And of course, all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.